0: Hebrews chapter 1 is where we're at. So if you have a Bible, I always invite you to open there to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Twice during the life of Jesus, God the Father spoke audibly from the heavens these words first time was at his baptism, Jesus' baptism. And after that baptism, the father spoke this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. And then again, one more time, on that mountain where he took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured, we're told, in front of them, it became all in white, and then there appeared with him on that mountain Moses and Elijah. Moses, the mediator of the law, Elijah, the prophets, representing the law and the prophets, are there standing and Peter, one of the disciples who was there, kind of in his bumbling way, said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Should I build these three tabernacles for you and for Moses and Elijah? And then we're told this, this is Matthew 17 here, in verse 5. A voice, says, a bright cloud. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowing them. And behold, a voice out of heaven, out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. He's not just another Moses or Elijah, Peter. Don't make him equivalent with Moses and Elijah. This, this one is my beloved son. Listen to him. The writer of Hebrews, our study now in these months, in a very similar way, begins his sermon letter, we've called it. It's really a sermon in letter form. He begins it by emphatically declaring that Jesus is the beloved Son in whom God has definitively and climactically spoken, we must listen to him. That's what the book of Hebrews is. Listen to what God has spoken in the Son. Consider Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. So here's how he opens. Hebrews chapter 1, let me read verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it one more time this morning. These opening verses, they are very rich. Here's how he starts his sermon letter. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Who being the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power, having made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Immediately, he launches us in to the superiority of the Son. No greetings, no salutations, no personal remarks, just immediately into who the Son is, the superiority of the Son. We call these first four verses a prologue, verses one through four, a prologue. A prologue is just a literary opening to this letter sermon where he is going to really state some of his main themes in the letter, and the main theme being the superiority of the Son we know as Jesus I said this prologue, these four verses is given in one sentence, one sentence in its original language, and that one sentence comes in three clauses, three main thoughts here, three clauses. And here's my description of each clause. We've looked at the first two, we're going to look at the last one this morning. First, the superior revelation of the Son. That's verse one and half of verse two, that's the first clause the superior revelation of the Son. He gives these two stages of God speaking. In the past, he spoke in a variety of ways by the prophets to the fathers. But in these last days, in these days of fulfillment, he has spoken decisively and definitively in his Son. The superior revelation of the Son. So here's my one-line summary of what we looked at there under that first clause. God's self-disclosure, that is, God's revelation in the Son is the climax and fulfillment of all prior or previous revelation, everything we call the Old Testament. God's final, his self-disclosure in the Son is definitive. It's the climax. It's the fulfillment of all that prior revelation. All of that revelation prior is God's word. It's authoritative. But all of it is anticipatory to its fulfillment in these last days in the Son. He fulfills all that was there in that Old Testament. Now when he says that, the writer of Hebrews, it's really the key to understanding his whole letter, his whole sermon. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all that went before, and as the fulfillment, he is better. He's superior. The fulfillment has come in him And he is superior because he's the son. It's it's not just that Jesus came like Moses and Elijah and gave us some more revelation. He is the revelation. The word made flesh. He is the climactic revelation of God. So we need to listen to him. We need to consider him. So that brought him to a second clause. Number 2, the superior person of the son. Who is this son? Why is he the final climactic revelation of God? Because of who he is. As I said, he's not just another Moses or Elijah. That's why Peter had it so wrong. You're failing to understand. This is my beloved son. Who is he? Well, that's verse 2 and half or verse half of verse 2 and all of verse 3. I said last week you can count seven attributes he gives about the Son, who He is. It's really magnificent. Here's my one-line summary of those. Who is He? He is the eternal Son, the perfect imprint of God's very being, or nature, who has become the exalted Son. That's who He is. He's the eternal Son. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His very being, He shares in the divine nature. Through him, God made the whole universe. Right now, he's upholding the universe and all of us by the word of his power. That's who he is. And this eternal son has now become the exalted son. And that's our author's main point. He is now the exalted. He's become the heir of everything. And he has sat down at the right hand of God, having made purification of sins, He has sat down at God's right hand. That's who he is. And it's that exaltation that leads to the third clause, the final one. This one we're going to look at a little bit this morning. The superior exaltation of the Son. It's verse 4. The superior exaltation of the Son. Again, let, let me read it again. After he says, he, he made, having made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He's talking about the exaltation of the son. He has become much better, much superior than the angels because God has given him a higher status, a higher name than theirs. Now he's right back where he started. As I said, verse 2, the first thing he said about the son is that he is the heir of all things. Now he ends this prologue by saying he's inherited a more excellent name. He begins with his inheritance, he ends with his inheritance because that's the central theme and ultimate concern of the author. This unsurpassed inheritance that Jesus has secured as the sun, we'll read in the rest of Hebrews, it awaits us. We, we will share in this inheritance. We are moving toward the promised land. I love that hymn we sang. It's just like it's coming right out of the pages of the, the book of Hebrews that's exactly the imagery the writer of Hebrews is going to use. We are presently, like in the wilderness, moving toward the promised land. Christ has secured that inheritance for us. So hold fast to him. Don't give up. Don't let go. Hold fast. That inheritance is coming. It's secured in Christ. So this is part of the main message of the book. That's why he begins and ends in describing the Son with his inheritance. As heir of all things... He, the Son, has inherited a more excellent name, a more excellent status than the angels. He has inherited the highest name and status in all of creation. So let's look a little closer now at that last statement of the prologue, verse 4, what I've entitled, Better Than Angels. Better Than Angels, which is going to lead him into his main point in the rest of the chapter. Just the rest of the chapter, he's going to go on and show that he is better than angels. You see it there in verse 4, having become as much better than the angels. That word better, it's first use that he's going to use 13 times in this letter. He is better. Jesus is better. The new covenant he brings is better. It's based on better promises. It's a better hope. It's a better resurrection because it's fulfilled in Jesus. And so this is his first use. He is better. Now, to get at this verse, what he's saying, I want to ask three questions. Because these are the questions that came to my mind as I read verse 4. So here's the three questions. Here's number one. Why angels? Why the comparison to angels? That may seem a bit odd to us. When he's talking about the superiority of the Son, he says he's become much better than the angels. Why does he say that? Why a comparison to angels? I think there are two reasons, the second of which is primary. But I'll give you two reasons I think he compares them with angels. First, outside of God, angels are the most majestic and powerful of beings in the universe. Outside of God himself, angels are the most majestic and powerful of beings. They are creatures, they're not eternal. God created them. In fact, he created them through the sun. But they are majestic. Angels are all through the Bible. Angels are referred to some 275 times in the Bible. Do you know that? It's a lot. As we read of these creatures that God has made, these angelic beings, they serve as worshipers around the throne, as messengers that God sends. See that? as protectors of God's people, as agents of God's judgment at times, as workers of tremendous things. I mean, you think of it. Remember the two angels that came to Sodom and Gomorrah? Destroyed that city? If you remember when we read in the book of Kings, 2 Kings 19, actually, one angel God sends one angel to destroy the entire army of Assyria, 185,000 soldiers. One angel. Majestic. Powerful. Now, just to clarify, we do not become angels. That's such a popular kind of myth in our culture. When someone dies, they become angels an angel and get their wings if you've ever watched a wonderful life with Clarence and you know that story it's a great movie with really bad theology about angels right <laughs> don't take your angelology from a wonderful life we don't become angels angels are not made in the image of god angels don't receive this inheritance that we have in christ Angels, actually, we'll learn in verse 14, are sent to serve us, but they are majestic. They are not to be worshipped. They are not to be prayed to, as often has been done even in the history of the church. They're not to be worshipped, though we might be tempted to. Remember in the book of the Revelation, John the Apostle, twice when he was given that great revelation twice by that angel, he fell down at the feet of the angel to worship him. He's overwhelmed. Remember, what the angel said, Don't do that. Don't do that. I'm just a servant like you. You don't worship angels, though we might be tempted to do that if one would appear in his splendor this morning. I think we'd be terrified, actually. They surround. The throne of God in worship. It's often what we see in those descriptions, again in that book of Revelation, as John sees that throne room. He gets a glimpse of the throne room of God. And what does he see? He says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And what were they saying? Worthy is the Lamb. They're worshiping the Son, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Hmm. He, Jesus, is not an angel. He's never been an angel. I received a letter just out of the blue this week. A personal letter, written very thoughtfully by. Just a young man in California I don 't know where he got my name, but he was part of the Jehovah Witnesses, and he had some questions I want to answer about the Bible. And as I 'm thinking to respond to him, as he has a different question, the, the central issue is who Jesus is, because in the Jehovah Witnesses, they believe that Jesus was Michael the Archangel. Do you know that? He was Michael the Archangel. Who was put into Mary's womb. He's not an angel. He's never been an angel. He's superior to the angels. So why the comparison to the angels? Well, well, firstly, it's a very effective way of substantiating the supremacy of the Son. Jesus. He's greater than the angels. But secondly, and this is the author's, I think, main point, angels were known to be mediators of the law We call it the Old Covenant now, the Mosaic Law, given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Angels were known to be the administrators or mediators of that law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, we're not told that explicitly in the Old Testament itself, though Deuteronomy 32 perhaps is an allusion to that, this myriad of angels. But the writers of the New Testament are very clear that that is the case, including the author of Hebrews. Stephen says that in his great sermon in Acts chapter 7, that you you disobey the law that was ordained by angels. Paul says it in Galatians 3, that this law was ordained, directed by angels through Moses So it's not explicitly said, but it's certainly widely attested to in Jewish teaching and in the New Testament. And the reason that was said, that was mediated through it, is a way to show the greatness of the law, the glory of the law. That it was mediated through these angelic beings with glory. So the writer of Hebrews, I said, this is going to be his main point, because this is where he's going in his letter. If you look ahead, just look ahead with me a little bit at chapter 2. Is he's going to draw a conclusion to what he's been saying, or at least draw an implication. Chapter 2, look at it. Verse 1, he says, For this reason, because Jesus is so superior to angels, for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, he's talking about the Mosaic Law. It was spoken through angels, the agency of angels. If that was true of the law, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation given in the Son? Do you see his argument? If that was true of the law, came through the mediation of angels, and Jesus is vastly superior to angels, how shall we escape if we neglect that? They didn't escape if they disobeyed the law. How will we escape if we ignore this revelation? That's going to be his argument through chapter one and chapter two. Pay attention. Are you? Are you paying close attention to Jesus and what he has done and who he is? Are you drifting? Are you drifting? He says, lest we drift away. Do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done? Do you know what's come? That's the writer of Hebrews, his argument. So that's the first question. Why the comparison to angels? This is where he's going. Second question that came to my mind. How did he, the son, become better than the angels? How did he become better than the angels? Do you see how he says it? Go back to Hebrews 1 verse 4. After he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and I, having become as much better than the angels. that's exactly the right translation. Having become as much better than the angels. So we we wonder, as the eternal son that we just saw last week, who actually created the angels, hasn't he always been much better than the angels? Hasn't he always been better than the angels? How has he become better than the angels? Well, again, we have to follow what he's trying to emphasize here of the exaltation of Christ. His, his emphasis, the writer of Hebrews, his emphasis is not on the essential nature of the eternal son. Yes, in his nature, he's always superior to the angels because he has the divine nature. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what the son has become as the heir of all things through his incarnation and death and resurrection. He has become greater in his inheritance. That is, he has been given more power and glory and majesty as the heir of all things. So I'll say it like this. Through his incarnation, death, and exaltation, the eternal son has become the perfect savior and heir of all things. That's what he's after here. Through his incarnation, what he's going to get to in chapter 2, and his death, also in chapter 2, and his exaltation, that's what he's been talking about here, this one who, yes, he's always been the eternal son, has become the perfect savior and heir of all things. In that sense, he has become greater than the angels. Now, we're going to see in chapter 2 that in the incarnation of the son, when he takes on flesh he actually becomes lower than the angels for a little while in his humiliation. But he does that so that he might taste death for us, that he might be crowned with glory and honor, far above the angels in his exaltation. So here, yes, he's always been greater than the angels in his nature, but here he becomes superior in a new way by purchasing salvation for his people as our high priest or our savior. This is vastly superior to the angels. No angel could ever, ever do this. So that's how he has become much better in his exaltation than the angels. Now at least to the third, final question here of this verse. What name did he inherit at his exaltation? Again, do you see it? Here's how the verse works. The second half of verse 4 explains the first half. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. That is, he is having become much better than the angels because he has been given or inherited a higher status, a higher name. His, His higher name, his more excellent name, shows that he's become much better. He's comparing the two. He's much better than the angels in the way that his inherited name is much more excellent than theirs. So what's he talking about? What name did he inherit at his exaltation? Well, I think by the context here, for me, the obvious answer is the name son. The son. Because he's going to say in verse 5, to support... What he just said, that he inherited a more excellent name. 4, verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. And that's what he's called in verse 2. God has spoken in his son. So I think the context makes clear that that name ultimately is son. But again, we have that same question. Isn't he already existing as the eternal son? Yes, he is. Yes. In fact, the writer of Hebrews is going to make that clear. That he is the son as he becomes incarnate, as he takes on flesh. Jesus, over and over, that was his self-identity when he was walking amongst us. God was his father. He was the son. So what does he mean? That at his exaltation, he inherits this name. Well, again, it's somewhat what we saw last week, but let me say it again. It is the name Son in its fullest expression as Savior, Lord, and Heir. That is, the understanding of the Son now takes on a whole new dimension with His incarnation, death, and exaltation. He enters into a new dimension of the experience of His Sonship. He's always been the eternal Son. What he has always been now comes to its fullest fruition and expression at his exaltation after his death. In that sense, he inherits the name Son in its fullest exalted sense. So that that name, Son, for the writer of Hebrews, becomes a comprehensive name. Comprehensive. It includes the idea that he's Lord. So in another place, Paul, different author could write, this is in Philippians chapter 2, that after Christ's suffering, his death, that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Yes, he's Lord. Well, son includes that, that he is Lord, he's exalted, it includes the fact that he is Davidic king he's on the throne of David as the son of God and that he is the heir remember sons receive an inheritance he's the heir and he is the savior and the high priest that's been anticipated in his sonship from eternity that he would be the savior the heir the high priest so all of that is subsumed under this name son so in that sense he inherits the name Son. He is now, get this, he is now our representative as God-man. That's the fullest sense of his title, Son. Right, don't, don't ever have in your mind that, you know, the Son existed, yes, from all eternity, with the Father. The world was in a mess. <laughs> God says to the son, go clean up the mess, right? I want you to go and act. Go, become human, be a savior, rescue these people. He accomplishes that, and then he goes back to the exact same status, position from all eternity. Oh well, no. No, no. He's exalted now as our representative as the son of man, the son of God and the son of man. He is the God-man forever at the right hand of God for you. That sense, he's inherited the name son. That's what he did. That's what's amazing. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to show. This is the final revelation that has come. God the son has taken on flesh and is now exalted at God's right hand. Take your refuge in him. That's the point of the book. So there it is. That's the end of the prologue. That's a rich prologue, isn't it? Those four verses, that one sentence, he gets right to his main themes, the final climactic revelation in the Son, who is now exalted much better than the angels. We need to pay attention. To, we need to grasp who he is and what he's done. And we need to hold fast to it. So that's the end of the prologue. But verse four, if you look at it, also serves as the transition to his first main point, or what he's going to prove as he launches into his sermon now. He's given you the introduction, the prologue, and now he's going to launch in to establishing it, really, in the rest of the book. But here, for us, in the rest of this chapter, You see the first word of verse 5? For, he's giving an explanation. He's become much better than the angels. He's inherited a more excellent name than they. For, and now he's going to start explaining. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, his first kind of main point of his sermon, is all about the Son being superior to the angels. How is he going to show that? How is he going to demonstrate that? Where are you going to go? You go to the Bible. You go to the Scripture. And that's what he does. So here's the overview. In these verses, he quotes seven passages of Scripture we call the Old Testament to show the Son's superiority over the angels. He's going to string together seven quotations, passages, Of the Bible, of the Old Testament, to show that the Son is superior to the angels. Why does he go there? Because the Scripture is his authority. And it should be ours too. The Scripture is the authority. And that's where he goes. He's going to show it. And really, we're in for a treat here, all through the book of Hebrews, but here too, because you you can see how he reads the Old Testament. That it was all anticipating the sun. So all through this, we're gonna get glimpses into how you read your Bible and how you read the Old Testament and how it is fulfilled in Jesus. And he starts us right out here, right at the beginning. Now, as he quotes these seven passages of Scripture, our author throughout the book, he likes to quote God's direct speech in the Bible. He begins most of these with he said or he says. Six out of the seven passages he quotes, direct speech. He says, especially God's speech to his son. What did he say to his son? We get to listen to what the father says to him. That's what he's trying to emphasize here. This is what God says of his son. This is what he says of angels. This is what he says of his son. He's going to contrast those two things. Notice how he begins and ends this section. He ties it up in the same way. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say? So again, he's comparing to angels. Which of the angels did he ever say this? We'll see what he said. And then look at verse 13 as he concludes. But to which of the angels did he ever say? So he begins and ends that way of showing the superiority of the Son... To the angels. To which of the angels did he ever say? That what he's saying there is that in all of the Bible, in all of Scripture, God never made to any angel, any specific angel, such a declaration as he made to his son. Nowhere in all the Bible did he ever say to any angel what he said to his son. That's his point. To which angel did he ever say? He never said this to any angel, but he says it to this one, his son. Now, in these seven passages of scripture, he highlights his, the son's designation as the son, his divine nature, and his exaltation. In other words, all the things that he has been saying in the prologue, the divine nature, his title son, his exaltation, all those things he's been he's going to show from the Old Testament. As over against the angels. He is designated Son, his divine nature, his exaltation over against the angels. So that's that's where he's going in these verses. He gives them in three sentences. He groups these quotations. Now just in the ten minutes here I have. I just want to look at the first one, okay? And We'll pick up the rest, Lord willing, next week of his argumentation. So just look at verse 5, the first of these groupings, two scriptures here, two quotes, because it flows right out of verse 4. I just want to keep it connected here. And what is he emphasizing here? What we've been saying. His unique sonship, the unique designation as son, Over against the angels. No angel has ever been designated this by God. But he has. His unique sonship. You see it? Let me read it. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. So here's his first two scriptures. Let's just look at The first scripture he quotes there in verse 5 is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. The second Psalm, verse 7. Here's the summary. At his enthronement, the enthronement of Jesus, his exaltation, God declares him to be his son. God has, quote, become his father. That's Psalm 2. Now, if you remember Psalm 2, I'm not going to go back and read and preach Psalm 2 but Psalm 2 is that psalm where the it's it's one of the the second psalms part of the opening of the book of psalms where the nations are are raging against the Lord and against his Messiah his anointed trying to throw off the rule of God and God is not threatened by that that's a psalm that says and God laughs he who sits he just laughs in derision and he says this but as for me I have installed my king upon Zion my holy mountain I've installed my king. This is an enthronement psalm. And then the king, whom God has installed, recounts what the Lord said to him. This decree, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this psalm is understood as an enthronement psalm when the Davidic king comes to the throne. God has installed his king. And on that day of his enthronement, he says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that's upon his exaltation. He declares, You are my son. When he says, Today I have begotten you, it means his enthronement. As I said last week, As we witness that coronation of King Charles III, that's his enthronement. Be like that. On that day, God says, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. That today is the day of his exaltation. What he has been saying right here, when he sat down at the right hand of God, when he inherited a more excellent name, that day God said, you are my son, I have begotten you. Now, that language, begotten, that's a big Bible kind of word that just means give birth I've become your father give birth now we don't translate give birth because he's using it metaphorically back in Psalm 2 when he says to the king today I've be- begotten you means today I've become your father it's like I've given birth to you today I've become your father today so he's using it as a metaphor when I become your father so when he's using it here of the son he's not referring to some eternal decree of God and the eternal begottenness of the Son. That's an important subject, but not here. It just means, on this day, I have uniquely become your Father. So the writer of Hebrews reads that text rightly, and he says, that applies uniquely and ultimately to the Son. Yes, there's a sense in which that was true of all the Davidic kings, They would become his son on that day to represent God on the throne, but it is true only ultimately of this one. So he's exactly right when he says, This is what God said to him. You are my son. Today I've become your father. Again, it's the same thing. Don't trip over that. He was the son from eternity. We've already said that. It's when he comes into this new dimension of his sonship in his exaltation. Today. And by the way, the next verse in that Psalm will say, He has given, I will give to you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. So back to that inheritance. That's when God says this to him. So he didn't say this to any angel, he said it to him, You are my son. And then the second verse, and again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now he's quoting 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. The promise to David that one of his seed, his descendants, would reign forever as the son of God. That's 2 Samuel 7. Now, if you, if you were here for our study of Samuel and our study of kings, you might remember how central that promise is to the whole story of the Bible. That's where God comes to David. David wants to build a temple. God says, you're not going to build me a House, I'm going to build you a house that is a dynasty. And he gives him this incredible promise that one of his seed, his descendant, will sit on his throne forever. And that promise informs really the whole story of the Bible. As Jesus comes, he's ultimately that seed as the son of David. But here, our author is not concerned about David. He's not concerned about him being the heir of David. He's not concerned about the typology of David. He's concerned about sonship. And so he's highlighting this one aspect of that promise. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That's what God said. And so again, he's reading that exactly right. That that promise is ultimately to one seed, one person who would uniquely be the son. The emphasis on sonship. God is speaking directly to the one who enjoyed a unique relationship as God's son. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. That's how he reads it. Now again, our author is really insightful in his handling of the scripture because he puts those two psalms together, or Psalm and 2 Samuel 7, because they belong together. 2 Samuel 7 gave the promise that these Davidic kings would be, quote, called sons of God, the son of God. And then Psalm 2 is reflecting on that promise, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So he sees them together, but ultimately he's right in seeing that they apply only or ultimately to one person. The person of the son. God said, you are my son. Today I become your father. That's who he is. We're going to pick up the rest of this next week as he continues to quote and show the superiority of the Son to all angels. So I finish with this question here this morning. What is your estimation of Jesus today? How do you see him? How do you value him? How do you think of him? What is your estimation of Jesus? Is it the same as God? This is my son. Listen to him. Is that yours? Do you adore him? Do you treasure him? Do you dismiss him? Just some historical figure. It's kind of interesting. What is your estimation of Jesus? To finish, let me just read the end of Psalm 2. Because this is where that psalm goes that he quotes here. And listen to the psalmist admonition to us of how we should think of the one that God said, This is my son. You are my son. This is how he ends that. I'll put it on the screen. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh, the Lord, with reverence, with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the Son. It's just imagery that means adore him. Submit to Him. Reverence Him. Do you? Have you? Do that. This is God's estimation of who He is. He's my Son. Kiss the Son. Adore Him, lest He become angry. His wrath may soon be kindled. But oh, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So there is one, one place of blessing. Salvation, blessing. It's refuge in the Son. Have you? Have you taken refuge in him? There's no other place of refuge. Everything outside of that is extremely dangerous with God's judgment. That's what the writer of Hebrews is going to warn. But oh, what safety, what security, what blessing is in the Son, refuge in the Son. Is he your Savior? Is he your refuge? I pray he is this morning. Call on him as your refuge today. Let me pray for us and Lord willing, next week we'll pick up the rest of this chapter. Oh, Father, thank you for your word that shows us your son and, and just hearing you say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. May, may we pay close attention to the son. May we kiss the son, adore him as our only refuge. Oh, I pray everyone here would be found to be in the Son as Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name.